There was a verse that Sarah read in our call to worship that stuck out to me. And as we were singing that song, I was thinking, this is why it is well. Psalm 85, verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. That is only possible in the cross of Christ. It is only possible for a righteous God to allow us to be at peace with Him through the suffering and death and resurrection of His Son. And so that's why it is well this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 37 as we take our next stop in our tour through the Bible. Our story of the Bible in 16 verses. And today brings us to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. And today we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 14. And I want to remind you of where we are. We're in chapter 10 of this 16-part series. And so I want, to, I want to read the story so far so we can get, kind of get a handle on it before we read from Ezekiel 37. I think we can have that on the screen. So the story so far... I forgot to put it in my notes today. I should have this memorized by now. The story so far is that God created a kingdom and he is the king, but he made human beings to represent him in that kingdom. However, we see in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve rejected that call, so, which led to sin and death. And yet in Genesis 3.15, we have this great promise, the first mention of the gospel, that God promised to defeat the serpent through the seed of the woman who we later find out in Genesis 12 is going to be through the seed of Abraham. And through Abraham's family, specifically uh, Judah and his descendants, through the royal line of David, the covenant blessings would come to the world. And then through the Passover and later through the suffering servant, we see that all people are guilty and deserve death. And the sacrifices of the Mosaic law reveal our need for a substitute. More specifically, the suffering servant that we saw in Isaiah 53. And now the story today that we're going to see from Ezekiel 37, drum roll, is that through the servant and the work of the Spirit, God would establish a new covenant and give lasting life to His people. Okay, and so that's where we are today. Let's read together now Ezekiel 37. And this is kind of a strange story, but I, I think it'll make sense as we, as we explain it. Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 1. Now, I'll give you a little background here before we read this. Um, Ezekiel and his people have been taken into Babylon. They have been exiled because of their sin, because of their rebellion, because of Israel's idolatry and their rejection of God. God has punished them by bringing Nebuchadnezzar, bringing the nation of Babylon to take them into exile. Almost everyone in Israel has experienced death. Someone in their family has died. They have experienced this. They've been taken from their home, and they're in Babylon when Ezekiel has this vision. Okay, Ezekiel 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very 
dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy or preach over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I preached, there was a sound And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you. And you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. And I will do it. Declares the Lord. Today we talk about resurrection promised. Resurrection promised. As we've seen previously in the story from Isaiah 53. That even though God would raise up kings. And God would bring blessings through the line of David and his kingdom, every king that followed in David's line was a sinner. And he failed. And because of the failure of the kings, it led Israel into idolatry and sin. And it seemed as if there was no answer. But in Isaiah 53, we see that the suffering servant would come and remove our sin. The suffering servant would remove our sin. And while that looks great and it sounds great and it is great that God would remove our sin by sending a substitute, someone to die in our place, there's still a problem. That even though the suffering servant would come, we still die. You see, when Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden rebelled against God, what did God tell them? In the day that you eat of that fruit, you will die. And ever since then, in Adam and Eve's line, the line of Adam, every descendant of Adam, every child of Adam has died. You read Genesis chapter 5 and you see the effects of the fall. When you read the line of Adam, so-and-so lived so many years and he died. And then he had sons and daughters and they died. And they died. And they died. And they died. 
The truth is, Three Rivers, this morning, if you look around this room, this is a sobering reality that in a hundred years, everyone in this room will die. That in a hundred years, there will be no one left in this congregation. We will all die and return to the dust. And so even though sin has been dealt with, there's still an enemy, a final enemy. The question this morning is, how will God deal with the enemy of death? What good is it if your sin is taken away and yet you stay dead? What good is that? We're told in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 that just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, so death spread to all men. And so we need to ask a question this morning. What do we do with the idea of the resurrection? You remember on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, Jesus had risen from the dead and he meets these two guys on the road to Emmaus and Jesus actually rebukes them. When they, they tell Jesus, Sir, are you the only one in Israel who doesn't know what happened? That Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and he died and we thought that he was the hope of Israel and yet he died and Jesus rebukes them and says... Wasn't it written in your scriptures that the Son of Man must be crucified and must rise? Like Jesus says, it was in your Old Testament. So now we need to ask the question, if you were a Jewish person living in Jesus' day, would you have known from your Old Testament that, it, that the resurrection was possible? Would you have known from reading your Old Testament that the Messiah would be crucified and rise from the dead? Would you have come to that conclusion? Where do we see resurrection in the Old Testament? The truth is, it's everywhere if you look carefully. The first account of this is actually in Genesis chapter 22. When you read the account of Abraham, and, and we have little children in here today, can you imagine? Abraham takes his only son, Isaac, the son of promise, the one that God said it's through Isaac that you're going to have many descendants. Now I want you to take him up to the mountain and kill him. And so Abraham almost sacrifices his son. And what does God do? He intervenes. He provides a ram. And that's all that's said. We're not told anything else in Genesis chapter 22. There's nothing revealed about Abraham's motives. But you have this really sensible uh, inference when you come to Hebrews 11. The writer of Hebrews actually deducts from that story that Abraham believed in the resurrection. The only way that Abraham could have possibly sacrificed his son Isaac on that altar was because Abraham believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. It has to be life from the dead. It can't be spiritual resurrection because remember, it's through Isaac that the offspring would come. And so Abraham just believes, okay, God, you want me to kill, kill my only son? I know this is your promise, and you have to keep your promises, so I'm going to kill Isaac because I just believe that you, if you're going to kill him, that must mean that you're going to raise him from the dead. So even from the very beginning, Abraham has this notion of the resurrection. And then you get to Job, right? Job lives in the same time as Abraham. Job, a very early book in the Bible. And Job 19 in verses 25 to 27, in the midst of Job's sufferings, right? He's got these really rotten friends who are telling him, Job, it's something that you did that caused all this suffering. Listen to what Job says. 
This is way old, Old Testament. Ready? I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand on the earth and listen to this. That after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Now, Job doesn't just say, I'm going to see God in this spirit-to-spirit fashion. That's not what he says. Job says, in my flesh, when my skin rots off my bone, I will see God in my flesh. That's personal resurrection. This is resurrection bodies, right? Even Job has this understanding. And then you get to Isaiah chapters 24 through 27, which is really apocalyptic. It talks about the end days. But here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 26, verse 18 and 19. Isaiah says, We were with child. We writhed in labor when we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth. And the people of the world have not come to life. But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. It says that in your Old Testament. Isaiah prophesied about this coming day when the dead would be raised. Not only that, but you also have certain miracles in the Old Testament like the resurrection from the dead. When Elijah and Elisha raised the Shunammite's widow's son, which is just a flat out miracle, right? That someone actually was raised from the dead. But probably the most clear picture of the resurrection in the Old Testament is in Ezekiel chapter 37. In Ezekiel 37, we find the prophet Ezekiel, the hand of the Lord is upon him and leads him out into the valley of dry bones. And we're told that it's pretty bad because it's very dry. And even when when God tells Ezekiel to preach to these dead bones, they come together bone to bone, but the bones are still dead. They are not alive. They're connected and flesh and blood cover them, but they are not alive until the Spirit of of God comes upon them. And then they stand up as this mighty army that was a valley of dry bones, but now it's full of life. Now, here's something we need to see about Ezekiel 37. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. And so, in order for us to apply this to us today, we need to understand what Ezekiel 37 meant in the days of Ezekiel. You have the nation of Israel, they are in exile, away from home, in Babylon, and they're going to be there for a while. And it looks as if this this nation and all the promises of God have been nullified. It's not going to happen. God must not keep his promises because he said he was going to establish David's kingdom forever, but now David's kingdom has been led into Babylon under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar. So what do we have here in Ezekiel 37? This image of dry bones coming alive, this image of of people being raised from the dead. It's not necessarily a picture of resurrection of bodies. It's actually the restoration of a nation. God is promising that I'm going to take this so-called dead nation and bring it back home. I'm going to make Israel, which appears to be dead in Babylon, I'm going to raise it back to life. And so this is the picture. So we begin today with 
with God restoring a dead nation. And so I've got three points I want to make today about resurrection. The first begins with Israel. And in each point, we're going to talk about the problem and the solution. Okay? There in your notes, the problem and the solution. Now here's the problem for Israel. When we read this story, the problem is that Israel's exile to Babylon appears as national death. It is national death. The nation that existed as Israel is no more. They have been taken away. They've lost their identity. They are in Babylon, in slavery. And here's the picture that Ezekiel draws in this imagery. It says it's a valley. And it's full of bones. So the first thing we see here with these bones is that the nation of Israel, they were totally hopeless. They were totally hopeless. That's the imagery of bones, right? Bones don't do anything. Bones are dead. Bones don't move. These bones have been there a while. They're totally hopeless. And then we're given another detail that they were very dry. Not only were they totally hope, uh, hopeless, but they were completely helpless. They could not save themselves. They were completely helpless. This is the picture of Israel apart from God in Babylon. A valley of bones, and those bones were very, very dry. So what's the solution? What does God do? God graciously sends a prophet with God's word. He sends Ezekiel, and all of this begins with the Lord. I want you to notice here that this all begins with God, right? Verse 1 says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and He set me down in the middle of the valley. This is God's doing, okay? And so what God does is he sends promises to Israel. He sends promises that I'm going to make these bones come alive. I'm going to restore the nation. I want you to look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, God tells Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, here's what the bones say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. They're hopeless. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what God says, Behold, I will open your graves, I will raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. God's promising to restore the nation. He's going to bring them back. And so God prom God's promises here would restore the nation's hope. That's the next point in your notes. God is going to restore their hope. Their hope was lost. We're going to be in Babylon the rest of our life. Could you imagine, could you just put yourself in Israel's shoes for a moment? We all have our nice homes, we have our jobs, we have our lives that we enjoy. I want you to imagine that someone from another nation came to America, took over, and took you as captives to another land, overseas, in another country. Can you imagine how hopeless you would feel and there wasn't a thing you could do to stop them? Their guns were bigger, their army was better, and now you have to take your kids into slavery in a foreign nation. And yet now God promises that he's going to restore their hope. And what I want you to see here is that this revival of the nation was initiated by God. 
It was initiated by God. God's the one who started this. God's the one that initiated. God's the one that sent the prophet. In, in the South, we always grew up, right, in this culture of having revivals at churches. And I, and I understand like, why we would do that. You bring a guest speaker in and they would preach Sunday through Wednesday, right? And so churches would schedule their revival. We're going to have a revival, right, and on, on January the 3rd through the 7th, and that's when God's going to show up. You ever thought about how, what are we scheduling God reviving us? How does that work, right? Dead things don't revive themselves, right? It's God that initiates. And so I understand like our culture, and I understand why we would do that. And, and honestly, those were some moments and times in my life when God really did move. And, and it was a season where we, there was a spiritual emphasis. But let's, let's not make any bones about it, right? Sorry, couldn't help it. We don't initiate revival. You can't make it happen. You can't start it up. You can't flip the switch. You can't pour gasoline on it and light the match. It's not our doing. Revival always comes from God. Every movement of God that's ever happened in history has happened because God initiated it, not because the people were looking for it. And so this revival is initiated by God. So God promises to restore their hope and God promises to bring the nation home. He says, I'm going to bring you back to your land. And if you read later in the Old Testament, we find that God fulfilled this through the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah, right? He brings them back and brings them back home. And this restoration was all by grace. Everything we read in this story is all by grace. Salvation is all about the work of God demonstrating the glory of God and we do nothing to help him. We're dead. And Israel was dead. They could do nothing to initiate this, all right? So that's the, that's the immediate context of this passage, that God is restoring a dead nation. He's going to bring them back. And God asked a really good question to Ezekiel. Son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? And Ezekiel gives the only right answer. Lord, you know. He submits to the sovereignty of God and says, Lord, you know if they can live or not. And Ezekiel is told to do something absolutely ludicrous. God says, Ezekiel, stand up. Stand up in the midst of this valley. This is your new congregation. First Baptist Church of the Valley. The Dry Bone Valley. And I want you to preach to them. And like if you're Ezekiel, you got to be thinking, this ain't, this ain't going to work. I mean, I, I mean, I mean there's got to be this sense of like, all right, I'm going to preach, but you ever thought, thought how silly this would be? Let me ask you a question. If you woke up this morning and God told you, um, I don't want you to go to church this morning. I actually want you to go to the cemetery down the road. I want you to stand at those graves and I want you to preach. Would you do it? Would you do it? You'd feel silly, right? You're out there in the, in the fog, in the, in the mist, in the early morning, right? And there's people coming to visit their loved ones, laying flowers down on the graves, and you're over there with your Bible open, preaching. And so Ezekiel preaches. 
And I would actually say that Ezekiel is doing what every person who ever shares the gospel or ever stands to preach the word, they are in the same exact situation. We are always preaching to dead bones until God makes us alive, right? Isn't that true? This is, this is the position of every preacher in history, to stand and preach to dead bones. The problem, the problem is nobody in here thinks we're dead. Now, we're not dead now. We're alive. God's made us alive graciously. But the truth is, before we knew Christ, we were all dead. Anytime you share the gospel with a lost person, that is exactly what God is telling you to do. He's telling you to preach to dead bones, and he's asking you the question, can those dead bones live? We have, we have a restoration of a dead nation. There's a second thing we see in this, this passage. Not only does God talk about reviving a dead nation, but he also talks about raising our dead bodies. Restoring a dead nation. Secondly, raising our dead bodies. And here's the second problem. The second problem this morning is that every one of us, we will all physically die. The problem of Israel was that they had national death. The problem for us is that there is going to be physical death. Every one of us are going to die. And I want you to notice what happens when Ezekiel preaches. Let's read this together. I want you to see what happens. Verse 7. Notice what preaching does. Verse 7. Ezekiel, it says, So I prophesied as I was commanded. Ezekiel obeys God. And he preaches to the bones. And as I preached, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. And here's the problem, verse 8, you get it? But there was no breath in them. This is the next point in your notes. Let's make no, sorry, no bones about it. Preaching alone can only make a corpse. Human preaching by itself can only produce a corpse. There was a sense in which Ezekiel's preaching, it got the bones to start coming together, right? The bones started to rattle and all of a sudden the toe bone got connected to the ankle bone. Ankle bone got connected to the shin bone. Shin, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, bones start coming together. Bo- sorry, bodies are, bodies are coming up. You got these skeletal figures that are alive. And then all of a sudden, they, their blood vessels start coming back. And then, and then muscles start covering the bones. And then skin covers those bones. And if you were to look at them, it would look as if they were alive. And there's this huge army of just zombies, right? And they're standing there, but there's no breath in them. The Hebrew word for breath, ruach. It's the same word in Hebrew for spirit. There's no spirit in them. There's no life, right? When God made Adam out of the dust and he made this body, you have this dead figure, Adam, right? And what did God have to do to make him alive? Had to breathe life into him. And so what you have from Ezekiel's preaching, when he preached to the bones, he got these bones to come up and they looked as if they were alive, but there was no breath in them. Here's what I want you to realize. Your sharing of the gospel and our preaching of the word of God by itself can only do so much to make someone alive. You can make people look alive. They can, they can hear the word and they can have all the external appearance of being alive, but internally they can still be alive dead 
unless the Holy Spirit comes along and breathes life into people. The truth is, this morning we got little children in here. You can go through the motions with them. I'm teaching every night. I get, I get John. We go to his bed, bedroom right before we go to bed, and he, we get on our knees and we pray. So, John, who do you want to pray for today? Uh, Gigi and Paul and Tube, which is Caleb, right? And I'm like, don't you want to pray for Daddy, right, or Mommy? Nope. Gigi, Paul, and Tube, and we pray. And he closes his eyes. We get to the dinner table sometimes, y'all, and my two-year-old reminds us to say the blessing for the food sometimes. And he'll, he'll close his eyes. He'll hold our hands. And when we're done praying, he says amen. When we sing songs at church, sometimes he claps and he wants to dance. And the truth is that in right now, I, I'll share the gospel with him as, as much as a two-year-old can understand. We read the Jesus Storybook Bible. I can share with him all I want. And my son has an outward form of religion, but there is no internal relationship with Christ right now. And he gives all the appearances of life, and yet he's dead. He can go through all the external motions of spirituality, but there's no internal movement of the Spirit. And so there's a point to which all I can do as a daddy is do all I can do is share the gospel with him. The same that you can do with your children. You bring them to church. We share the gospel with them. We teach them how to pray. We teach them how to do that. But when it comes to us, we can only make them do the outward signs. We can never cause inward conversion. Ever. There is the, there's this helplessness on our part where we can only do so much, but there's not a thing that I can do to make my child go from dead to alive. Right? Don't you see it with your own kids? They go through the motions. They even know these songs. But most of them, we pray for their conversion. And they can look like everything's right, but until the gospel penetrates and the Spirit breathes life in them, they're just like this valley of bones. They come together, their eyes are open, they got skin over their flesh, but there's no spiritual life. So let's not, let's, let's, let's not make any mistake here. Preaching alone can only make a corpse. The truth is, only the Spirit can bring true conversion. You know what, you know what that means for us as parents? And as friends to our lost neighbors and co-workers. We still have responsibility to share the gospel, right? Ezekiel still had to preach to the bones. But he also had to pray and preach to the Spirit. He had to pray for the Spirit to move. And it was only until the breath, the Spirit came. Look at verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Same word, spirit. Prophesy to the spirit. Prophesy, son of man. And you say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they what? They lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. We need the Spirit of Christ to awaken people to life. We share the gospel with dead bones and our preaching and teaching might lead them to morality, but it will not lead them to conversion. Only the Spirit can do this. 
And so what, how do we understand resurrection now? We start, we get to the New Testament, and Jesus himself even raises a small number of people. But certain individuals, some specific individuals, he raises them from the dead. The son of the widow of Nain, for example, he raises that son from the dead as that boy is being brought to his burial in Luke chapter 7. And then there's this remarkable event in John chapter 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. I would argue that this isn't resurrection, this is actually resuscitation, right? Because Lazarus is going to die again. There is a critical difference between Lazarus' resurrection and Jesus' resurrection because when Jesus is raised, he will never die ever again, just as Graham read today during communion. In Lazarus's case, he's been dead for four days, right? He's been in the grave four days. So that the, 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 he's starting to smell, right? His body's starting to decompose. And so John tells us this, that he's been dead for four days so that there's no way that you can confuse the resurrection from the dead with calling somebody back to life who needed a heart fibrillation. We just need to shock him one time. He'll come back. No, Lazarus has been dead four days days there's decay and it's in that context in John chapter 11 that Jesus says these words I am the resurrection and the life in other words Jesus promises in John chapter 11 Martha confesses her orthodox faith yes Jesus I believe that Jesus I believe that there's a resurrection at the end I believe that my brother will rise on the last day yes Jesus I do believe that Lazarus will rise but it's going to be at the end I want to see him again but I I just believe it's going to be later. And Jesus asks her a question. He says, yes, but I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, do you believe that? Not that the resurrection is a day, but it's a person. I am the resurrection. I am the life. In other words, here's what Jesus is doing. He is thrusting himself in the center of everything. It's not just that there is resurrection on the last day, but that there is no resurrection apart from him on the last day. He is the one who makes resurrection possible. And that is finally demonstrated on that spectacular day, on Easter Sunday, of his own resurrection. The problem we have today, the problem is that we will all physically die. But the solution to that problem is that God sent a Savior who defeated death. God sent a Savior who defeated death. And it's in Christ's resurrection that we find our resurrection and so what happens, 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then we're still in our sin and all is in vain. So hug your kids, love your wife, kiss your spouse, and have a good time because this is it. And yet, because Christ came and not only died for our sins as a suffering servant, but he rose from the dead as the resurrection and the life by his power. He has not only been raised from the dead, but he will raise us. The truth is this morning, death lost its sting and the grave lost its grip. I want you to see what God says to Ezekiel in verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to Israel, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. 
This is promise of future resurrection. I will raise you from the dead. That means death loses its sting. That's why at funerals we don't weep as those who weep without hope. Death doesn't sting like it would have if death was the final answer. Right? The third point we see here is that not only is God restoring a dead nation, He's not just raising our dead bodies, but there's a third promise here that He's going to revive our dead hearts. You see, the first problem is that was national death. Israel had died nationally. They were in exile. The second problem is that we're all going to physically die, right? Our bodies die. But there's a third problem, and this is the root issue. Third problem is that we are all born spiritually dead, right? The real issue is spiritual death. Because in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't just physical death that we would die. Adam and Eve did not die immediately. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. Do you notice that when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they didn't die immediately on that day? Or did they? You see, their bodies didn't die until like 900 years later. But I would say that Adam died on the day that he ate of that fruit. His body didn't die, but his heart did. Spiritual death. Unable, incapable of coming to God. We are all born spiritually dead. And that means two things. If you're born spiritually dead, we're just like that valley of dry bones. And here's the deal. Number one, no one can save themselves. You can't save yourself. Because you're dead. When we read about spiritual death in Ephesians chapter 2... Spiritual death does not mean that you're out there in the ocean just waving your arms saying, send me a life preserver, send me a boat, help me. Dead people don't cry out for help. Death means not that you're on the top of the water, but that you're seven miles deep on the ocean floor, dead, and you do not want God. You don't call out for God because you don't even know that you need Him. That is the extent of our death. No one can save themselves. And Romans 3 is clear. Secondly, no one will seek the Lord. We're not seeking for Him. Those dead bones weren't looking for God. They're not looking for Him. They're not seeking after Him. God had to go to them. They didn't come to Him. And if you were to look back at your own spiritual conversion, just like Spurgeon did, Charles Spurgeon says, I was sitting in my office one night and I was thinking about how did I come to faith in Christ? And he said, I started to think about it. And he says, you know what? There was a time when I, I guess I, I prayed and, and asked the Lord to save me. I called on his name. He said, but then I thought, well, what led me to call upon his name? He says, well, I, I guess I read the scriptures. But then why did I read the scriptures? Well, there was somebody that came to preach. And so I heard that preaching. And then, but then why did that person come to preach? And then I realized that it was God who sent that person to preach. And Spurgeon says, in that moment I realized it flashed across my mind and it was so clear that God was at the beginning of it all. And if he had not initiated and come to me, then I would have never believed and called upon his name. Have you thought about this? I just want you to go back in your mind. Just take it step by step. All the way back to your conversion and ask yourself this question. At the beginning of my conversion and coming to Christ, was it because I did something or because God did something? And if we're honest, we all have to say, God did. 
the only reason that I confessed faith at 11 years old is because, well, I, I recognized my sin. But wait a minute, I, I recognized it because I went to the North Rome Church of God's passion play that they did at the forum and I saw visible representation of the gospel and I watched that and that's what led to my conversion. But wait a minute, why did I go to that? It's because my, my parents brought me to that. And, and, but why did they bring me to a Christian event like that? Well, it was because they were converted. And if I look back then, it was because, because my dad was converted and when, he was, when he was 18 years old and he was a rebel and never grew up in church. So why did he become converted? Well, it's because he had a friend named Gary Neighbors who invited him to church. And when he came to church at East Strong Baptist Church many years ago, there were 20-something men in the basement of that church praying for him. But why did those men pray for my dad to be converted? Why did that even happen? It's because God put it in their life. And then I realized the only reason I'm even here today is because God initiated something 50 years ago. And here I am preaching the gospel because God was merciful to my mom and dad. And he didn't have to do that. I could have grown up somewhere where the gospel was never preached. There is no reason that we're in here in the first place other than God's grace. Go, Just do that this afternoon. Go back to your own conversion and ask yourself, why am I in the faith? It's because God did it. And apart from God initiating it, no one can save themselves and no one will seek the Lord. So I want to ask you the question this morning, Three Rivers. You ready? Here's your question. Can these bones live? Can the bones live? This is not just a question for a prophet 2,500 years ago. This is a question we need to ask today. To the wife who is married to an unbelieving man. He's not abusive, but he's an atheist. He's kind and he's caring, but he's not Christian. This wife goes to church alone every Sunday and he refuses to come. He is much more interested in his hobbies of golf and fishing. He shows no interest in religious things and he certainly doesn't want to hear his wife babble on about that Jesus stuff. Let me ask that wife this question. Can these bones live? Or what about the parents this morning who are raising children and they're daily confronted with the reality of their sin? You're raising sinful children. Oh, they're good, they're moral, but they're still rebellion. They talk back, they disobey, they lie, and they don't seem interested in church. And in their teenage years, they even ask if they can stay home while mom and dad goes to church by themselves. And you have parents who are trying to train their children in the right way, but nothing seems to work. And they wonder if their children will ever come to faith. Let me ask you, parents of children, can those bones live? What about the coworker who has faithfully prayed for and shared the gospel with his friends at work and yet they are still hardened by the things of God? Let me ask you, can those bones live? What about the discouraged missionary couple who left their family and their comfortable lifestyles to live among an unreached people group for years and they've seen no fruit and they're tempted to give up because this native culture is so hard to penetrate and there seems to be no interest in their message, not to mention the fact that they're constantly under the threat of government persecution and hostility among the people. Can those dead bones live? As we look at our own culture in America and the vast majority of people are uninterested in religious things in a postmodern society where truth is relative and no one is interested in Christianity when there's so much political strife, there's people being shot, there's violence in the streets. Let me ask a question. Can these bones live? And the only right answer is, oh Lord, you know. Right? 
So the solution to this problem of dead hearts, the problem is that we're all born spiritually dead. Here's the solution. We're going to go through these quick. The solution. Earlier, God sent a prophet with God's word. Then he sent a savior to conquer death. And here's the third thing God did for us to solve the solution of spiritual death. God sent the spirit to make us alive. God sent the Spirit to make us alive. This is not one of our stops in our series, but Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, is a critical point in the Bible. Where God makes a new covenant with His people. A future promise of a new covenant. Let me read this for you. God told Jeremiah, while he was in exile, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenants that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. This new covenant, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their sin and I will remember their iniquity no more. The promise of this new covenant, this is an easy way to remember Jeremiah 31.31, right? Jeremiah 31.31, you need to know that verse, new covenant. It's actually quoted verbatim in the book of Hebrews. It's so critical to this promise that God would make His people. And here's the promise God's making from Jeremiah. And even in Ezekiel, if you go back a chapter to Ezekiel 36, God says, I'm going to take out your heart of stone. I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will obey my laws and my ordinances. Why? He's making a new covenant. And so here's the promise of the new covenant. Three things, very quickly. Number one, in the new covenant, God will give us a new heart. God's going to give us a new heart. It doesn't say that he's going to clean up the old heart. This is, this is spiritual surgery. He's going to give you a heart transplant. And when you're converted by the Spirit of God, he takes out the old heart, the heart of stone, the heart that is hardened to God and hates God and loves sin. He takes it out and he puts in a heart of flesh. That's what we pray for our children and for our lost friends, that God would remove a hard heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, a heart that is sensitive to spiritual things, a heart that that loves God's word, a heart that is sensitive to sin and convicted over sin. Only the Spirit can do that. God's going to give us a new heart. Not only that, He says He's going to give us His word. In this new covenant, God's going to write His word on our hearts. Not only, you're not going to have to tell people know the Lord because they will know the Lord because He has written His law not on stone tablets, but He has written it in their hearts. It has become a part of who they are. There will be a desire to obey God. If you've been converted, if you've truly believed the gospel, one of the evidences is that there will be a desire to read God's word and obey it. You have a new heart, God will give us His word. And the third thing, God says, I'll give you my spirit. I'm going to give you life. I'm going to breathe new life into you. And it will be abundant life. When you read God's word, you're going, to, you're going to say, this is really hard to do, but now I'm empowered by the Spirit of Christ. I'm going to give you everything that you need to obey me. He'll give us a new heart. He'll give us His word. And He'll give us His Spirit. This is the new covenant. 
the promise of a new covenant. The second thing God's going to do is the power of true conversion. The power of true conversion. He says, I'm going to take out your heart. I'm going to give you a new one. I'm going to put my spirit within you. This is what we need when we're lost. We need to be truly converted. Regeneration. We need new birth. Unless your children are born again, they'll never see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. And we've been confronted with this reality already, but let me say it again. There in your notes, with man, salvation is impossible. It's impossible. You can't make your kids love Jesus. And in some ways, that's scary, isn't it? You can't make your kids love Jesus. But, let me say this, that just because you can't make them love Jesus doesn't mean that God doesn't use you as the means to bring them to love Christ. That means when you bring them to church and they see your love for Christ and they see your, the way that your life has been transformed, when they see the way you worship and the way you sing, that's why your worship matters today because they're looking to see if you have true joy or not. When they watch your life and they hear the word of God, God will use that and in His timing He will use those means to, as they come to church and they're surrounded by spirit-filled people and as they hear the gospel and as you pray with them at night and as you teach them the stories of the Bible, God will use those things as seeds to plant life in them. And in His timing, the Spirit will bring new birth. So we have responsibility. But let's not, let's not make any mistake here. Salvation is impossible with man. Jesus said in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So with man, salvation is impossible. Here's the good news, y'all. With God, all things are possible. God can, take, God can take a camel and push him through the eye of a needle. Now that sounds pretty impossible, but I'll tell you something more impossible. Taking a dead person and bringing him back to life. And God can do that too. God is the one who can raise your children. He's the one who can raise your friends, your co-workers, an unbelieving spouse, unreached nations. He can raise them. He can do it. That's why Jesus said later in John 6, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And there is something magical that happens when the preaching of the Word of God is connected to the Spirit of God. That's what God uses to bring life to His people. There is no magic, there is no power in me simply preaching the word. I am completely dependent on the Spirit of God to connect with the preaching of His word. That's what makes the Bible powerful. That's what sets it apart from every book in existence is this word of God is connected with the Spirit of God. And when the Spirit of Christ speaks through the word of Christ, it will convert sinners. Almost finished. Graham read this early in Romans 6. Do you not know? Three rivers that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father. We too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Here's the good news of the gospel today. There was another man who walked in a valley of dry bones. And he took on death for us. He 
became death. He went through the valley of dry bones and he became those dry bones in his death. He was buried with the dead, crucified with our sins so that you and I can walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't walk through death, we walk through its shadow. We are untouched by death because death has lost its sting and we no longer feel its grasp because Christ has conquered Death, And that means that there was someone who entered that valley for us. He has been raised from the dead. He has conquered death. And in the gospel, you and I have, have victory today over death. And so what that means for us, there's a purpose for the church. Finishing up here, purpose of the church. If all this is true, and if salvation is impossible with man, but it is possible with God, what does that mean for us? That, must, that means that we must preach the gospel to the lost. We must preach the gospel to the lost. Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It takes the word of God being preached just like Ezekiel preached to dead bones. We must share with those who are dead. And yet at the same time, we preach the gospel to the lost. While we do that, we must trust God to give eternal life. We trust God to give eternal life. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace we have been saved. Let's be bold with the gospel. Let's not fear death. And let's preach to the lost. Let's share the gospel with those who've never heard. Knowing that God is the one who brings them into eternal life. And He uses us as means to do so. Can these bones live? Yes. They can live and they will live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. A word that reminds us that apart from Christ, we are dead. We are hopeless and we are helpless. But yet you give us hope. You sent us a prophet, a priest, and a king. You sent us your word. And you sent us your spirit. You sent us a savior. You have initiated all good things for us that we may live. And today we are dead bones that have been raised to life. And so we want to take the breath that you have breathed into us. And we want to breathe it back out in praise and worship today. So help us to worship. May our children watch us and see our joy in being raised to walk in newness of life. Father, may you use us as witnesses of the gospel. May you use us today to be witnesses in our communities, to share the good news that dead bones may live again. Thank you for the hope of the gospel and the hope of the resurrection. Father, we anxiously look forward to that day, but until then, let us be generous with the good news and bold in its preaching. Father, would you be worshipped and glorified now in spirit and truth as your people stand to worship you, the ones you have raised from death to life. In Jesus' name, amen.